Well, if you're here today, great day to be here. We're starting a brand new book, First Thessalonians. And so if you have the notes, you can use those and grab the Bible. And uh, this is believed to be Paul's very first letter ever written. So some of the staple things we see that Paul says in Ephesians and Galatians and, and so forth, the first time he said them was here. Now, you guys might remember Paul and Barnabas came back from their first missionary journey to Antioch, there outside of Israel today, so not too far from Israel. And John Mark, who we learn later is Barnabas's cousin or nephew, uh, forsook them, missed his girlfriend, missed his mommy, we don't know. <laughs> but Paul said, hey, he's not ready. But Barnabas is like, no, no, he'll do great on the second missionary journey. He, you know, he's learned his lesson. And Paul said no, and Barnabas and Paul split. And Barnabas took his nephew, John, or John Mark, and they went one direction. Paul picked up a new Barnabas, if you would, Silas, and with him a few others. And they started leaving Antioch thinking they were going to go into Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. But as they were traveling with this group of evangelists and, and apostles, God said, nope, nope, be quiet, keep moving, nope. And they finally hit the GNC. And he's in a place called Troas. And he's like, what do I do? And God said, hey, in this vision, there was a woman on the other side of that sea in Philippi wanting to hear the gospel. So he traveled across, and now he's into Europe, Greece. And he goes to Philippi, and actually it was a man calling him, but it was actually a woman that he met. He found some Jewish women by the river, and he preached Christ. They believed, and there was the first church of Europe there in Greece. And it was going really good. God's Spirit was pouring out. Now, they were incredible worshipers of Diana, and, and there was one woman who had the ability through a demon possessing her to read fortunes and tell the future in a demonic way. And she heard the gospel, and the demon came out. But the man who was her pimp realized, oh man, that was my main money source. He gathered the people of Philippi together, and they were going to kill Paul and his buddies. And the church said, hey, you got to go. So they traveled about 100 miles and came to Thessalonica. They passed through a couple other places. And they eventually come to Thessalonica. And they're there for three Sabbaths, so at the most four weeks. And the guys from Philippi come up there. And they cause a great disturbance there as well. And they say, you guys got to go. They're going to kill you. So Paul, after only three weeks, had to flee. So here's the thing that's going to blow you away as we read this letter. Paul teaches deep things in those three weeks. He'll say in chapter 2, now concerning the rapture of the church, the second coming of Christ, you know very well 
that the Antichrist must first reveal himself. You guys know very well. I preached three weeks. You guys are mature Christians. You know, you should be pastors and missionaries by now. It's been five weeks. So he, he wasn't gone very long, and he was concerned. And so he sends back Timothy and Silas with this letter to encourage him, mainly because heresy filled in. People were coming and saying, yeah, Paul told you this, but here's the fuller revelation and contradicting what Paul said. And so Paul is having to go line by line saying, nope, not true, not true. What I told you is the truth. Don't believe what they're saying. And this is the background of where we come to this town. For a long time, it was called Salonika. But today, in the recent past, they've changed the name to what it originally was, Thessaloniki. Thessaloniki was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. And so the town was established in, in honor of Alexandria, or Alexander, but there were so many Alexandrias everywhere, there still is to this day, from Alexander the Great, that this time they named it after his half-sister, Thessaloniki. Now, next week we'll take a look at chapter 16 and 17 and read some and cover the basis a little more to give you a little more background. But today, I'd like to speak on this opening phrase we're so familiar with, but yet it's the first time Paul penned such words. So in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of Thessalonica, in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, grace is the word of the day, charisis, which means power to you. Uh, the word grace in Christianity became much, much greater, talking about mercy and love and forgiveness and patience and kindness. It was a beautiful word, even at this time amongst the pagans. It was a, a very powerful word of you know, peace be upon you and grace with you and be strong. And then the second word, peace, is the Hebrew, shalom. Shalom, you know, it's the word peace, but it means far more. It means healing. It means may you be a whole person. And Paul is saying, as he does everywhere, in this order. First, grace then you'll experience the peace. Now, I grew up in Christianity, and I did not know about grace. They didn't teach it. I had a lovely church, but unfortunately, they didn't really teach the Bible. They did teach you to be kind to animals and, you know, be nice to people and don't honk if they're taking another second before the red light or the green light comes, you know. So I learned a lot of good social things, but I didn't learn the Bible. And definitely didn't learn about grace. And I remember in high school, just absolutely in hell. Every Sunday they would give an altar call. Every Sunday I went to get saved again. 
And I would determine at that altar, oh God, this week I'm going to live right. And by that night or early Monday morning, I yelled at my mom or kicked the dog or whatever. And I thought, oh, I can't wait to get back to church to get saved again because I think I've already lost it. Now, I don't think everybody thought that way. I, I think I was an extreme case. But I would just be in turmoil, crying out to God. I'd, I, I learned as a kid to pray, now, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to take. If I should die before I wake, you know, Lord, help me. You know, I, I don't deserve mercy. I'm not walking in a right manner, and, and I don't think I'm going to make it. But mercy, let me make it anyway. But I was pretty sure I wasn't. And, and I remember they would encourage you, go out and, and tell people about Jesus. And I thought, I wish I didn't know about Jesus. Because I'm, I'm in this perpetual hell. I don't want to put somebody else in it. I'd rather them not know about God at all. And that's when I, I began to think, hold it, I, something's missing here. And I remember I was at Horizon. Ray Bentley was a pastor there at that time. And he taught this message on grace. And I was with some of my friends from college that were studying to be pastors. And we all grew up in this church. And, and we heard him. And afterwards, we were talking, going, this is heresy. It, 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 it sounded like a completely different religion to us. And we just started studying. And as we looked at it over and over again, we realized, Wow. This is the gospel. We've been studying to be pastors and, and, and witnessing and, and trying to read the Bible and serve God, and we didn't even know the beginning. Paul in Acts 20 says, it's the gospel of grace that I gave you as he talks to the church of Ephesus. And so this is where I began to love the Lord. Enjoy Christ. Wanted to tell people about Jesus because they're coming unto the God of all grace who gives salvation, not because we're worthy of it, but because of his grace. One of the best books, if you haven't ever read it, by my pastor Chuck Smith, who's now with the Lord, Why Grace Changes Everything. A fantastic book. And he goes over this far better than I probably will today. He calls these Siamese twins <laughs> because they're always together, but always first grace and then peace. You won't know the peace of God. Be at rest, full of joy, knowing that you're going to heaven, knowing that Wherever your sin abounds, his grace will abound more. You won't have the, the fun and the relationship until you rest fully by faith in the grace. And it's from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord our God is one Lord. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said that I and the Father are one. In John 17, he said, And I, Father, as he prayed, I am in you, and you are in me in a perfect unity. I ask that we would be in them and they in us. So again, when we have one God, but yet the second person of the Trinity died paying for our sins. 
but it was the love of the Father that sent his Son to begin with to bring us this salvation. So the first thing we need to understand about grace, it's an undeserved favor. So in religion, in all religions of the world, the first step is you realizing your horrible, sinful, evil condition, and you start pursuing God. Man, I'm going to start doing this, and God's got to accept me. I remember the first time I went to Mexico City, and all these people in the middle of the road were on their knees climbing uphill for miles to the basilica. And once they got to the gate, they used to tie a ribbon, but then the priest would cut the ribbons off. So they started putting these padlocks on. And they started cutting the padlocks on, padlocks off. So now they got these giant padlocks that in no, no way. So the gate is barely working because there's so many padlocks. But they believe that if they walked on their knees that long, that God owed them this answer to prayer. So they would pray for somebody's health or whatever the, the problem was. And I just remember just going, oh, that was, that was me. I would be good for a couple of days and, and say, okay, God, now I feel worthy to pray. You owe me one. <laughs> I don't feel guilty about reading the Bible knowing I'm a horrible sinner. I don't, I don't feel like a hypocrite going to church knowing that I didn't really live the way I should all week. And now I'm going to go to church and act like I'm a Christian. I don't, you know, that was me thinking that I had to earn God's favor. Here's how re Christianity religions are completely different. In all religions, you are striving to reach God and to please God by your works, by your sincerity, by your efforts. In Christianity, it's God reaching down to you him bringing the gift of salvation to you and telling you just by faith receive it. And then we think in our minds, oh, okay, okay, because he knows I'll be worthy in the future. You remember that in, in, in school? They'd pick you on the basketball team at recess and you're like, man, I'm going to teach that guy that picking me was the best thing he ever did, you know? So I could pick next day, you know, when, and a lot of people think that, oh, God, God handed me off salvation, but now I've got to run the, the, the race and, and win the prize. So really the reason God saved me is because he knows I'm going to be this thing in the future. Guys, it's just not true. It's not because God had some insight in your past. It's not because God has some insight in your present. It's not because God has some insight in your future that you'll eventually be worthy of this gift of salvation. No. You may. You may walk in a manner worthy of him for a day or a month or a year or maybe the rest of your life, or you may not. But either way, you have the gift of salvation as a gift not of yourself. I love this story about King David. Remember what the Lord says about David? Now, talking about a big sinner, David sinned a lot. I like that guy. <laughs> I can relate to him. But yet, all we hear about David in the New Testament 
is not as adultery at Bathsheba or fleshing out counting the people and uh, the armies of Israel like he wasn't supposed to, but all we hear is David is a man after my own heart who did all my will. And you go back through and you ask yourself, was that the point that God felt that? Is that what David did? But here's the kind of thing we see with David. I think it really is focal in that story in 2 Samuel 9 about Mephibosheth. You guys probably know that story. This is where David now is secure as a king. Now, typically, the king comes into power and he kills all the relatives of the previous king. I mean, third, fourth cousins, you know, somebody that might even look like he belonged to the family, even though he doesn't. They wipe them all out because they didn't want 10 years later some cousin or nephew or child, even worse, trying to overthrow him. David did not do that. David says, I want to find all those of the lineage of Saul that I might bless them. And his men went out and they looked and they looked and they looked and they couldn't find anybody until finally one came back and said, there is one grandchild of Saul's, but just leave the guy alone. Number one, he lives in a place called Lodabar, low, nothing, Debar, a place, a field, a place of nothingness. He's out in the middle of nowhere. And the day that he heard that his dad and grandpa were killed, his nanny picked him up. I picture some 400-pound nanny. I don't know. And she started running just out of fright, not that anybody was chasing her. And she falls on the little boy and crushes his legs, and he becomes a cripple. And in this society, when you are a cripple, you might as well be dead. You've been cursed by the gods, or by God, or you're, you're an unfavored person. Horrible, the way they viewed it in those ancient times. And they said, so you don't, don't even bother with that guy. And David said, go get him. And Mephibosheth comes in, and again, he's lame. Maybe they're carrying him in, or maybe he has some kind of wheelchair, or maybe he's on some kind of crutches, and he bows before David. And David says, Mephibosheth, I want you to be as my child. You will sit at my table every mealtime and eat as one of the king's kids. And all of the lands of Saul, I will touch nothing. All that he owned and all his sons owned are now yours. Not that you're going to need the wealth of it because I'm going to provide for all of your needs as you live here in the palace with me. And it, that story ends that, so Mephibosheth set, ate at the king's table. And then the last line of that story is, although he was lame in his feet. You see, what did Mephibosheth contribute? Nothing. What would he be able to contribute in the future? Nothing. He can't go to war as one of his generals. He can't go out and represent David. Not in these times. All he was was a guy just sitting around the palace, 
really accomplishing nothing his entire life. But what a picture of God towards us that is. Because all of us feel like we're an exception. Now, now Brian, I know you're talking to these other wonderful people, but I'm a special case. I am such a weak person. I am such a person that struggles with so many sinful things. You don't know me, I, you know, but I've got a real anger problem or lust problem or greed problem or you have no idea what's really going on in my heart. And, and so I can see how God loves everybody else here, but me, <laughs> uh, I'm a special case. Anybody feel that way? Yeah, okay. Me and Don, that's all. Sorry. Don's like, I will never raise my hand in church again. We all feel that way at times. And so we have to come and have the faith. Even though we're lame in our feet, and maybe we will have something to contribute in the future, maybe we won't. That either way, it's by faith alone in the grace of God alone. In Ephesians 2.8, one of the most important verses in the Bible, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And what? Not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not of yourself. You're lame in your feet, <laughs> You see, this is the way it works in our instincts. Yes, I know you gave me it as a gift, but I know humanly there's strings attached. And so it's amazing how many branches of Christianity will build into their theology that, well, until you live the Christian life, we can't really know if you really had faith or not. I know you said you had faith, but you've been sinning a lot since you said you had faith. So really, is your faith really faith if you don't have these godly works in your life? Strings attached. So now the fear, the guilt, the anxiety of, man, I got to live for God because I got to look like a Christian in order to really have faith of a Christian. Do you see how damning that is? What, what was Mephibosheth to do? He was just to rest. Imagine if me and my wife, of course, many years ago now, we decided to adopt a little six, seven, eight-year-old boy. And we went to the orphanage and we visited him and it took a couple of years, but we finally got it all done. And now he is officially our child and he's got his little suitcase and he opened the door, and there, my other kids are there, hugging him, greeting him. And, and we take him upstairs, and we show him his bedroom. And you, you can tell he's, it's all a lot to take in. But that first night, we're sitting down to eat, and his manners are impeccable. He's perfectly there just doing everything right the way a person's to do. And soon as dinner's over, he jumps up and says, I'll do the dishes. And he runs in, and he's cleaning the kitchen and picking up all the plates and getting everything done. And 
And we say, look, you know, just be a regular eight-year-old boy. You don't have to do all that. You know, we'll, we'll take turns and you'll have chores, but... Well, the next day he goes off to school. And around time they should be home, I hear this knock at the door. And he says, uh, <clears throat> there he is, a little boy at the front door. May I come in? And now what are you going to say to him? We're going to say, come in. This is your house. You just walk in. But yet every day he knocks on the door. <laughs> every day he asks if he can come in. Every night, impeccable manners. Every night, he washes the dishes. Every night, when he says, go to bed, he runs and jumps right in bed. He's doing everything he can to be a perfect child. And you can just see it wearing on him. The anxiety, the, the, the anxiousness of it all is just wearing on him, and it's, it's crushing him. Now, what would you do as a parent? You'd grab his little face and say, we love you. <laughs> We're not taking you back to the orphanage. There's nothing you can do to cause us to get rid of you ever. And he says, oh, okay. But then he continues on with these perfect works to prove himself the right pick. Now, just simply as a parent, would you enjoy being a parent to that child? Or would it cause you to have an ulcer, seeing that they can't just trust and, and be a regular person at ease, a regular eight-year-old boy enjoying life? And in the same way, Christianity is where we have faith to believe God loves us. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, no footnotes, whoever believes by faith shall not perish, shall have everlasting life. Well, what about the works? You know what? It sort of depends. If you're coming out of a gang life and you're living with a girl and you got three kids from three different girls and you never really worked a job and, and you've got court dates coming up because of your past, it may, it may take you years to, to finally start walking in maturity as a Christian. But if you come in, in a regular life that had a great family and great parents and great education and, and you become a Christian, it, you may not have as far to climb out of the ditch to, to start looking outwardly, at least as a Christian. But again, doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, if you got an orphan and he had no manners at all, he's been, he's been moving from home to home to home, rejected, 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 and he has all of these problems. What are you going to do? Whatever it takes. The same with God towards us. This is where the children of Israel could never be at peace. They never entered the promised land because they didn't trust God. They thought of God as this guy who's sort of like a man and you got to really question the motives. 
So they get across the Red Sea and they're praising God. Another day later, we have no more water. This was God's trick to get us out here in the desert to kill us all with thirst and our babies. and our. That's, now we know what God was really up to. That's what we thought all along. <laughs> and Moses goes, God, they're going to kill me. And water came out of the rock. A few days later, oh, we know what's going on. God's going to kill us with hunger. There's no food out here. God brings manna out of heaven. They finally get to the Jordan to cross over in the promised land and 12 spies go in and 10 of them come back going, they're giants, they have giant countries, giant buildings and giant walls. There's no way we can win. We knew this is what God had all in mind to take us across there and let these giants rape all the women and kill us and take us as slaves. We knew that's what God was up to. (laughs) But yet we learn in Deuteronomy 7, Verse 6 through 8, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, Because he will keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Well, what's God's God's motives? Why did he choose us? Because he loves you. Yeah, well, what else? (laughs) No, because in the future we'll be this great people. No, you may be, you may not be. That's yet to be seen. But he has set his love on you, and always the human history on planet Earth will be the Jews are a special people of God right to the very end before the world melts with a fervent heat. David had to come to this personally in his own life by faith. In Psalms 91.14, because he has set his love upon me, Therefore, I will deliver him, God says. I will set him on high because he has has known my name. Why is God going to deliver me? Why is God going to set me on high? Because he loves me. He set his love upon me. We must first by faith accept God's love, his mercy, his forgiveness, in word, grace. It is an un deserved favor. Secondly, it's an unmerited, unearned favor. Okay? So first of all, it's undeserved. Secondly, it's unmerited. I love that story in 2 Kings 5, where the great general in Syria, Naaman, gets leprosy. That's a death sentence in those days. Plus, you got to leave your family. you got to be isolated. And a young Israeli girl that had been taken captive in, in one of the battles with Israel said to her mistress, Naaman's wife, hey, there's a mighty prophet in Israel by the name of Elisha. And through him, I think God could heal his leprosy. Well, Naaman got permission and 
And he starts heading towards Israel to Elisha. And God speaks to Elisha and he sends his servant Gehazi out to him and says, go dip seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman was, and oh, why, I'm, why didn't that guy come out and meet him himself? Doesn't even know how big and important I am, how fat, rich I am. If dipping in a river would have healed me, the Syria, the rivers are a lot cleaner than that Jordan River. Let's get out of here. And one of his servants said, hey, had he asked you to slay a dragon or, you know, give him a zillion dollars in gold, you, you would have done whatever he asked you. Now he's just asking you to do what you do every day. <laughs> Go take a dip in the Jordan. And Naaman's like, oh, okay. He goes down and the seventh time he dips, his skin was like baby skin. Boy, anybody want baby skin again? Man, that would be nice. And so he starts to now head towards Elisha again to thank him. And Gehazi again comes out and he, he says, no, no, I, I won't take any payment. He wanted to give him gold. He goes, no, nothing. But Naaman couldn't wrap his head around that. I've got to do something. I've got to give you something. I can't just go dip and be healed and, and do nothing. And God was setting a story for us to see. No. You're a heathen. You worship in a pagan temple. And God cleansed you. Leprosy, being cleansed from leprosy, we'll learn in Leviticus, is a picture of salvation. And it is not something you can buy beforehand or after. <laughs> it's something by faith you receive it. And that's the end of the story. God's good. God's gracious. Of course, in this story, Gehazi says, man, if Elisha won't collect that money, I will. He runs out and, and he says, hey, Elisha changed his mind. Give me the money. And he goes and buries it. And, and uh, Elisha, the Lord tells him, and Gehazi gets the leprosy that Naaman had because of that messing up the story about God's grace. So it's not of works lest anyone should boast. It's not of yourself, intrinsically, in character. You'll eventually become the person that God wants you to be, and that's why he saved you. It's not of yourself. It's not of works. It's not the money you'll bring in later. <laughs> yeah, you know, save this guy because I need the money, and he'll start tithing after he matures as a Christian, and, and over the next 20 years, I'll get some good money out of him. Or he'll serve, and he'll, you know, we'll start going to the orphanage, and we can get some work out of him later. No, 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 no. You may do those things, but not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not of works. You may do good works to love God, but it's not going to save you more. It's not going to dot the I or cross the T, or it's not going to God go, see there, that was a good pick. Look at how obedient he's being. No. I love in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 to 31, but of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness from God and sanctification from God and redemption through God. As it's written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So now I'm walking in wisdom, but it's because Jesus Christ, 
He entered my life through the Holy Spirit. And that's why I have wisdom now. That's why I have righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that I might become the righteousness of Christ. Christ became my righteousness. Christ became my sanctification. That's our life becoming more like Jesus, walking more like Jesus. But again, we can't start walking like Jesus because we want to go to heaven. No, we want to walk like Jesus because we love him, period. Am I going to bear good fruits? Yes, but it's not, doesn't earn heaven. It doesn't, again, uh, cause me to put in the bank. And once I get enough in the bank, then I, I get to heaven. No. And of course, redemption being bought out of these sinful bodies into our new body in heaven. All the glory goes to God. The next thing is, not only is it unearned, undeserved, unmerited, but it's also of God's fullness that he's given us grace. You see, God is the God of grace. That's it. That's his, one of his top, if not the, the top characteristic, because in grace is love. God is love also, but we get love through because God is a God of grace. I love John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Till we are pickled in the grace, we can't handle the truth. <laughs> God lets us know that he died for us, he, he paid for our sins, and, and that through believing in him and faith alone will be saved. Now he can tell us we're sinners. But God doesn't say, you're a sinner. Oh, okay, but I died on the cross for you. It was, it was painful, by the way. Hope you appreciate it. No. In John 1, 16, I even like this even better. One, two verses later in John 1. And of his, what? fullness we have all received grace what upon grace you you know that's an impossibility right because grace is all you need already and more so it's like coming to God going Lord God forgive me and you have your little five gallon bucket of grace you need (laughs) forgiveness and God said okay He sort of smiles and chuckles and all the angels are sort of giggling. And all of a sudden this fire hose clicks on. (laughs) I'm here with my five-gallon bucket, you know. And the thing gets knocked out of my hand and and they're laughing. And and then I look around and another fire hose, another fire hose, another fire hose. And then they shut off and all of a sudden these doors of the dams begin to open up. And there I am, out in the middle of this giant lake, paddling, going, God, I just need grace. He goes, that is grace. Now get ready for grace upon grace. And in the distance, there's these giant walls that come down. And all of a sudden, this this flood, powerful, just begins to take me until I'm out in the middle of an ocean. And it's like, I just wanted forgiveness. (laughs) yeah, you've come to a God that's grace upon grace. I love what 1 Peter 5.10 says, but may the God of what? 
all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make what? All grace abound towards you. Always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance of every good work. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore, more gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul is like, hey, God, I need grace. Heal me. I'm, I got this thorn in my flesh and I can't do the ministry anymore. And God says, okay, you, you have the faith to be healed, but you need to learn to rest fully in the grace. So I'm not going to heal you. <laughs> so in your infirmities, in your weaknesses, in your poverty, you learn to lean upon my power, my love, my kindness, my goodness. I mean, you think about it. You, you get in a car wreck and you're crippled. And you say, man, I need grace. Heal me. And God heals you and you start walking again. That's, that's God's grace. But if you have to stay crippled the rest of your life, boy, that's a whole nother level of grace, isn't it? And so Paul, God says to him, no, the thorn in the flesh is going to stay there. The rest of your ministries on earth is going to be why you're sick and infirmed. And you just got to learn to walk in a grace you have not yet known, Paul. Now, Satan's plan is to frustrate our grace. His plan is to try to get you to believe that God's mad at you, frustrated with you, disappointed in you, that you should be better than you are. You should still be more diligent, more holy. And it's funny, in our minds, we, we do this. And you say, well, I, I, I will be approved of God when I pray every day. And you say, well, do you pray every day? Every morning I pray. You don't pray at noon or night? Oh, okay, yeah, I'll start praying at noon or night. Well, when do you pray? I pray every morning, noon, and night. Well, how long? Oh, about 10 minutes each. 10 minutes each? If you're not praying an hour, it doesn't even count as praying at all. So now I'm praying an hour, morning, noon, and night. And, and they, they say, well, what day of the week do you fast? Fast? Oh, you got to pray and fast. You see that it'll just keep getting raised. Our brains will do that. It's, it's funny to look at Judaism. The one law, you know, keep the Sabbath day holy. The Jews, over a period of time, wrote 1,500 pages. And virtually almost anything you do is going to break the Sabbath day. They just kept raising the, the bar. Raising, that's what we do, you see. So if you try to turn into religion, the gospel of grace, like all other religions. You know, you start wearing a robe, shave your head, get some beads, hi, hi, Christian, Christian, Rama, Rama, or, you know, get your rosaries, Hail Mary, full of grace, and you're doing all of these beads and dress codes and haircuts, and you're doing all of this, you know, crawling on your knees for miles to get to the basilica. You're going to find that 
yeah, you crawled on your knees a mile to the Basilica, but the real spiritual people do two miles. And then some old lady said, I quit doing two miles years ago. I do 10 miles. It's the way our nature's going to go. And this Satan knows this. And so this is where he wants to come in. And, And the Bible tells us that we have this high priest who loves us and sympathizes with our weakness. He himself was tempted in every way we've been tempted, but without sin. And he says, come into the throne room of what? Grace. Did you know God's throne room is called grace? And to come to him into that throne room of grace to receive mercy and what? Grace. You know, it's like my kids when they used to be on their tricycles, learning how to their tricycle, and they'd be riding their tricycle, I'm sitting in a chair, and they'd fall over, ah, they start crying, you go and you get them, and they're like, oh, my leg, my leg, and they're pointing, you can't see anything, I need a Band-Aid, get a Band-Aid, no, I need a Mickey Mouse Band-Aid, okay, go get the Mickey Mouse Band-Aids, and then they're on the tricycle, and they fall again, I need a Band-Aid, What do you do as a parent going, just get off that dumb tricycle? Or or do you just kiss every little owie and after 30 minutes they've got 40 band-aids all over them and you're just laughing and you you love kissing every single boo-boo. You love, see, this is God towards us. He loves us. He's not surprised when we sin. In 1 John, it says, as we walk in the light as he is in the light, comma, you'll be perfect like he is. No, comma, the blood of Christ will cleanse you from all sin. Even as we are walking in the light as he is in the light, because it just takes faith, right? We are still struggling with our human sinful condition. So we come to this great high priest. He's got a smile on his face. He loves us. He kisses our owies. But Satan wants you to think, that God is disappointed. So you come in and go, God, forgive me. I know better. I struggled. I mean, God looks at you and goes, how long have you been a Christian? Ten years? <gasps> and you're struggling with that? Whew. Okay, okay, I forgive you. Go. Fifteen minutes later, you come back. Uh, I, I need some more forgiveness. Wow. Weren't you the guy that was just here 15 minutes ago? Yeah. 15 minutes later, coming back in. Are you kidding me? There's been 2,000 years of Christians. I've never seen this before. Gabriel? Nope, nope, never seen this before. Oh, okay, go, go, you're forgiven. 15 minutes later, you got to come back again. And now all the angels are scrowling at you. And God looks at you and looks away, starts talking, and he looks at you and goes, what do you want? Well, I need forgiveness again. Gabriel, look in the book of life. Is this guy's name really in there? And then you go out, come back in 15 minutes later. Oh, boy, are we surprised. Look who's back. And we get, God just like, get out of here. Don't, don't even come any, don't, don't walk any further. Just go, 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 you're forgiven. And 15 minutes later, we need to go back again. And we're like, no way, 
Forget it. I don't need their attitude. I don't need their forgiveness. I don't, I don't want anything to do with God. I, I, this is the best I can do, and it's horrible, I know. And maybe I just never was saved to begin with. And just forget God, forget Christianity, forget his forgiveness. I, don't, I, don't even, I hate his God, so I'm out of here. See, that's what religion eventually does to you. Because the bar keeps getting raised. And, and you, you keep failing. And if the religion doesn't give you a system to fail, you'll create in your mind your own system to fail. And so this is where we've got to, to realize that where sin abounds, grace abounds more, right? Philippians 1.6, he who began this good work in you, he will complete it. Religion says, he who began this good work in you, now it's your responsibility to complete it. That's not what the Bible says, is it? He will complete it. He started it. He'll complete it. Song of Solomon says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. In Song of Solomon 2.4 says, He brought me to the banqueting house. His banner over me is love. David in Psalm 42 Verse 7 and 8 says, Deep calls unto deep, and the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. Grace upon grace, you see. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daylight, and in the night his song shall be with me. David understood. Deep calls unto deep. It's like being at the foot of a waterfall and just getting knocked down under the, this grace and kindness, this loving kindness of God towards me. Christ has done it all. Not just the beginning, not just the middle, but he's done it all. In Hebrews 10, 14, by one offering, he has what? Perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, now may the God of peace him sanctify, may the God of peace himself, it's emphatic, with nobody else's help, sanctify you completely in spirit, soul, and what? Even our bodies. And be preserved blameless. While we're in this flesh, even though we fall seven times, we get up seven times. The righteous man, it says Proverbs, fall seven times. I thought after he fell five times, he wasn't called the righteous man anymore, but no, he is. Even after the seventh time, he's still the righteous man. By faith, he gets up, and God preserves him blameless. We know Ephesians 5, where it says that God, as our husband, will wash us and cleanse us and sanctify us. There's not a spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He will present us perfect before the Father. Do you understand? He's going to do that. So God loves us. You believe. Well, what kind of faith? The Bible doesn't say lots of faith, little faith. Faith that has works. Faith that doesn't have works. It just says believe. Do you believe that God loves you? Can you believe that he sent his only begotten son to die in your place, to be your substitute, taking all your sin upon himself, paying for 100% of your sin, and perfect you, preserve you unto heaven now. 
as we pilgrim through this life, he will keep washing us and cleansing us, purifying us. If we sin seven times a day or 70 times seven a day, he will forgive us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. His grace will abound more. He is faithful even when we're faithless because he can't deny his own nature. Not not lacking in faith, but faithless. (laughs) Like the prodigal son, he's faithless. Give me the money, dad, I'm out of here. Ah. What was the father's attitude towards that prodigal son? Every day he went out and looked down the road waiting for his return. He who began that good work in you, what? Will complete it right up into that day until we see Jesus. So we need to grow in the grace. In 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. Amen. And then we need to be strong in the grace. In 2 Timothy 2.1, Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say be strong in a disciplined life. Be strong in obedience. Be strong as a faithful person. Be strong. No. Be strong. Just coming like Mephibosheth. (laughs) And just keep coming to the king's table, living in the palace. Even though we're lame in both feet, we can't add anything to this kingdom because of the lameness we are. It's okay. It was of his good pleasure. Why did you choose me? Because I just set my love upon you. Did you answer the question? Yep, I did. I just set my love upon you and chose you to be a special people to myself. There is nothing more to add to this. You are called. God has chosen you. Say in your heart, he is my God and I am his child. You just need to understand grace. Be strong in the grace. Grow in the grace. Understand his love, especially his love for you personally. I'll tell you, a lot of Christians have this testimony. It is mine as well. Years after being a Christian in my mid-20s, it finally... I was able to hear it <laughs> by faith. God said, Brian, I love you. Oh, I know you love everybody. God, you're such a wonderful God of love. No, I, I love you. And it's, it couldn't get through my head. And finally, the Lord grabbed my face and looked at me and said, I love you, Brian Newberry. And I, it just crushed me. I finally was able by faith to receive. He, he loves me. You know what I found out later? He even likes me. <laughs> Put your faith in the greatness of his grace, not the greatness of your obedience or the greatness of your future, what you're going to do for God, just in the greatness of his grace, which includes his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his kindness, etc. For he will never give up on you or let you go just because he loves you. In Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, 
how shall he not with him also freely give us what? All things. Not some things. All things. Neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers nor things present or things to come will ever separate us from God's love. Some might say you're taking away everyone's motive for going to church next week and regard, reading the Bible and tithing. You better add a little bit of fear and anxiety into this message or nobody will show up next Sunday. It, it's true that grace kills all religious motivation. Grace kills all the legalism, all the anxiety, all the fear, all the guilt. See, all cults, all religions, they keep you dangling. God loves you, but then if you're not doing this and that and that and that, you should feel guilty. You should be a little bit anxious. I know God loves you, but you need to be a little worried about this. And, and they always hinge it where grace is alone. We have faith in the grace of God alone. So we come to church because we love God. We want to grow in him. We want to be strong in him. For me, I am grieved when I'm in the flesh. I don't want to be in the flesh, but I find that if I'm not strong in the word and strong in prayer and strong in fellowship and hearing the word of God preached, I find my flesh running rampant and grieving me and, and I'm angry and frustrated and 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 but yet when I seek God first in his kingdom and wash in the water of his word and pray without ceasing and just fellowship with him, I find the kindness I want to be in me is in me. I find the strength to live a holy life is there. And that's where I want to be, not because I'm trying to earn salvation, not because I want God to like me or love me or not cast me away. It's just because I enjoy being in fellowship with him. I love walking in the light as he is in the light. Never perfectly, unfortunately, but his blood cleanses me from all sin. The only motive is just to love God because you love God. <laughs> Everything else, without love, it's a get, you know, hitting a cymbal. <laughs> Blasting a trumpet in somebody's face. If you, have, if you don't have love, you are nothing. It accomplishes nothing. Only one motive that God wants is to love him. So this is the culture. This is Christianity. It's the culture of grace. It starts with grace. It's maintained in grace. We're going to go to heaven by God's grace. We're going to stand at that pearly gates and Jesus presents us, it says in Ephesians 5, without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle to the Father. This is my bride. She's beautiful and perfect because he does it by grace. Well, in Mark 12, 30, we know you shall what? Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You will be obedient to the Lord. You will walk worthy of the Lord. You will go to church if you spend up blood. You will give your tithe no matter what or I'll curse you. No. One commandment. Everything else gets swallowed up by this one commandment. The entire Bible, all 
of Christianity is in this one sack. Everything God says from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Revelation is that we would come with joy, faith, fellowship, and just say, God, I love you. You're the best. I didn't know kindness until you treated me so kindly. I didn't know mercy until you were so merciful to me. I didn't understand faithfulness. And of course, your gospel is a gospel where you as a gift and the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gift that you've given to me, not because I'm worthy or ever will be worthy, but because you love me. I love you. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that we first understand his love for us. Amen? Thank you for your word today, Lord, and just speak it deep, 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 deep into our hearts that we would know you. And if you're here today and really it's for the first time you've heard true Christianity and your heart is crying out, maybe you're listening online or maybe you'll listen to this sermon 10 years from now if the Lord tarries. It's just by faith. God, I believe you love me and you sent your only son, Jesus, to be my substitute, to take my sins, to die in my place, to be punished in the punishment I should receive. And then he rose again after being buried. He rose again on the third day, conquering my sin, conquering death for me. And so as Christ raised, I shall also raise. I believe in that gift of salvation. And by faith, it's hard. It's humbling. I want to make you proud of me. I want to be worthy of it. I want to buy it in some way. But I know that that would offend you. I just by faith alone receive that gift, knowing that if I were to die in this second, I would be face to face with you because we go to heaven. We shall not perish. We shall have everlasting life because of the gift of Christ Jesus. I receive it. Wash all of us today with the water of your word. Let us be strong in the grace. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.